This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with poet Elizabeth Alexander. Download the MP3 of our produced show with her at onbeing.org. Good morning, Elizabeth. This is Chris in St. Paul. Krista's just getting settled in, and we'll be right with you. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, I've got your attention, though. Uh, How was your ride to the studio this morning? It is really rainy and blustery here, so it's kind of a strange day. But it was fine. Hi, Elizabeth. It's Krista. Hi, Krista. How are you? I'm good. Good. Thanks for having me on. Well, do you remember we met? Of course, yes, at that Grey Wolf um, fancy party. Yes. So when was that? It must have been around graduation time. It was graduation, mm-hmm. exactly. It was okay. for the College of St. Ben's right, graduation. Right. How did that go? I think I met you before. You'd... It was wonderful. It was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. The, the president is just terrific. We really yeah. hit it off. And it's nice to be at a small school where you can kind of have a sense of the whole. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that made the graduation itself more intimate than those things can, can often be. Yes. I had a great time. It was wonderful. Those are those Benedictine communities up there in the middle of nowhere. Um, oh yeah, really interesting, and they've they've been really powerful, you know, across time in the world. Mm-hmm. But they're very quiet as well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just they are just who they are. Yes, yes, yes. That's how it felt. Yeah, <laughs> and the architecture at St. Ben's is so beautiful too. How, the and care they've taken. Been. Yeah, and I had never been uh, north in Minnesota. I'd just been to the Twin Cities, so yeah. that was fun, too. Yeah. So, Chris, um, looks like this door is open. I don't want to. So, you know, I'm really excited about this, and I want, I mean, it's a, it's a, converse, you know, it's a conversation with poetry rather than poetry mm-hmm. with conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, and I think we'll, we'll talk... Um, and, and and I might ask you to read some poems, or you might feel sure. inspired to read some poems for you know mm-hmm. for maybe a, an hour, and then and then I I just I'll invite you also if there's some you just want to read and talk about, um, we'll do that as well. Okay. And um, of course, the great thing about uh, 21st century technology is that it won't all make it into the radio show, but it will all have a life online. So that's that's what's great. So exciting about it. Um, but what I what I realized as I was really dig, dig, sort of steeping myself in you is that what, I, what I'm longing to talk about in general and what I feel you have a particular way into is, is this whole notion of language and how we speak and how we tell truth, right? And how, you know, mm. and how we do that internally and in our public spaces and, and how we're, I think without necessarily having a handle on what's gone wrong with the old forms, mm-hmm. we're kind of collectively aware that the old forms aren't serving us or they're not enough. Yeah. So so that's kind of what I want to take as our the the canvas. And then okay. on that canvas, obviously, there's all the particularity of, of who you are and, and what, what you write about. So let's just, yeah, I'll say, Chris, do you, sorry, I'm getting... You, you're getting I love that you're getting a roll in here. Uh, just real quick, though, Elizabeth, is it possible for you to turn your headphones down a little bit? Could the engineer on that end do that? Yeah. Oh, now um, Phil is showing me where to do that. Um, he needs to come and show me. Right here. 
Ah, okay. There we go. Is that a bit better? Yeah, what we're doing, what we hear is we, we hear Krista coming back down the line through your headphones. So let's just have Krista talk for a minute. Oh. Okay, know, okay. Not, although it's a hearing, little I'm quiet for me now. Okay. Well, no, Krista's loud enough. Mm-hmm. Chris, Chris is not loud enough, but Krista is. All right. I just, and you can hear yourself. That's important, too. I can hear myself, All yes. Right. Okay. Um, better. All right. We're ready to go. Okay, ready to go then. So let's just start with, and you know, with this as uh, this gets to be a real conversation, we get to wander and belabor points and all of that. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. So when we say, so we're, this is it. Yeah, this is it. So um, okay, great. Uh, uh, and when I want to start, I mean, you you have an amazing family background. It seems like all, all the individuals. There there's so many great stories in there. Um, uh, your father was a civil rights advisor to President Johnson. He was Secretary of the Army, in fact, the first African-American in that role. Your mother is an author and historian. Your grandparents sound amazing as well. So, um, so but I'd l- I want to ask you a question, you know, against that backdrop that um, doesn't come through in um, at least what I could write. What, what was the, the spiritual uh, context of that? Was there, was there a spiritual or religious uh, element to your childhood as well? Um, well, that. that's interesting. Um, I think that I've been thinking as uh, I've been thinking towards this conversation about spirituality and ethics, mm-hmm. you know, and what's really the difference um, between uh, the way that a spiritual life is practiced and articulated within a family and what is um, a family sense of ethics uh, and mm-hmm. an ethical life that 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 guides the family. So I, I would start by saying that we were infrequent church going Episcopalians, <laughs> um, and uh, there wasn't uh, a lot of uh, conversation about explicitly spiritual matters in my home growing up at all. But what there was conversation about was. Uh, the need to constantly address and engage in the struggle for justice, hmm. that every day in one way or another was about making things fair for everybody to whatever extent you could, large and small. Um, that was very, very, very much in the water when I was growing up. Now, also very important to me, I, I grew up as a serious student of dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I studied ballet and then modern dance at a place called the St. Mark's School of Dance, which was a studio uh, over an Episcopal church. And the way that the dance company and school paid the rent was by performing uh, in church uh, a few times a year. That was that was the deal. That was the, the agreement. Um, and it was a very, very progressive church because um, we were not, uh, you know, wearing white and carrying Easter lilies when we danced. <laughs> right. We were really, we were doing experimental, abstract modern dance very huh. often. Um, and uh, there, there was no narrative to much of the dance we did and nothing that was explicitly connected to um, what was happening in the church. But at the same time, I think uh, the dance marked a kind of spiritual engagement. That was our offering. Hmm. Um, and that was also, I think, how we showed how dance achieves a, a kind of transcendence in the moment hmm. uh, and how we marked 
uh, a moment of meditation, which is what I think art does for us. Art arrests us. It makes us stop in the midst. It makes us contemplate. It makes us allow ourselves to be touched by spirit in some kind of way, even if it doesn't come to us in that language. Right. So that was a very, very important part of, of, of my growing up, not only the, the St. Mark's context, but also the very, very serious study of dance, which is ultimately, I think, um, uh, been folded into my artistic practice as a poet. Right. So there's that aesthetic bodily um, connection with with church <laughs> in particular, yes. and 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 also something that jumped out at me in an essay you wrote. I think it was at the beginning of uh, Black Interior. You wrote about your these shelves that your mother had. Yeah. And you you use the words aesthetic and sacred al- almost interchangeably in that in those sentences. Yes, um, though, though my mother um, became a uh, historian and scholar, she and I went to graduate school at the same time, actually, um, <laughs> once she was done with the business of, of raising up her children. It's a great late uh, 20th century story, isn't it? That's right, yeah. exactly. It's highly, highly specific to uh, our exact moment mm-hmm. in time uh, as American women. Um, but uh, she is a very, very gifted artist, um, studied art and architecture, and has a really beautiful aesthetic touch with anything that she does. And so on these shelves um, were extraordinary objects, sea glass. I like the cobalt ones the best. They seem to vibrate with the most power. Uh, Seashells, a a broken robin's egg in a tiny, tiny, tiny nest. Um, uh, uh, Eggs made of marble and glass uh, that she collected and put in egg cartons. Um, She always, whenever we would go to the beach or go anywhere outside of the city, into nature, which was always uh, noteworthy because we were such urban people. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, when we sort of, you know, put on our our rucksacks and mosquito net and went out into nature, (laughs) um, my mother was always looking down and picking things up. So these weren't uh, expensive artistic objects. No, no, no. They were beautiful objects collected in the course of, of life. These were found objects. These uh-huh. were found objects. Uh-huh. And um, she rendered them precious. And also, I think, and as I write in that essay, my mother would laugh if I told her that I thought she was making altars. She would have said, <laughs> that's not what I intended at all. They were just pretty, and I put them on the shelf because I like to look at them. Uh-huh. But I felt, especially as um, later on I learned more about um, uh, altar making in the Black Atlantic tradition, Hmm. um, I I thought, well, I I do think that's what she was doing because those shelves were a place where certainly I went to uh, contemplate, meditate, be arrested by beauty and uh, think about the power contained in um, objects that um, that came from nature, objects that God made. Um, and we also had, I, I had a great uncle, Charles Alston, who's a fantastic painter. Um, and we always, we had lots of, of in quotes, real art on the walls. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was a way in which those paintings and such, some of which were shown in museums, w- were in an interesting interplay with the seashells and the stones. Mm-hmm. So when you look back at your <clears throat> when you look back at your childhood now, um, 
where do you see the seeds um, of your life as a poet? Um, I think I certainly um, I was a, a very, very, very voracious reader. Um, I think almost all writers are, and I think writers should be, because after all, why would you want to make things that you didn't love to also consume? Yeah. It sort of doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I read a lot. I read widely. I read all the time. I read in school. I read out of school. I read magazines. I read serious books. I was just um, hungry, hungry, hungry. Um, but I think also um, I was the proverbial you know, child with the jug ears. I was a, a listener. I liked mm. almost nothing more than listening to the grown-ups talk. And my parents allowed us to do that. They um, uh, weren't of the children should be seen and not heard school. But on the other hand, they also weren't of the children have uh, the same amount of discursive space in a serious conversation that grown-ups do <laughs> school either. So my brother and I, uh, we listened. And um, I loved it when people came over and sat in our living room and, and talked long into the night. Um, and the different ways that people spoke was always something that I noticed. The different ways that people spoke in my own family, the different ways that people used English in my family. Mm. I had one grandfather with whom we spent a great deal of time uh, who's from Jamaica, uh, though he had emigrated to, uh, to Harlem, New York, and another grandmother who came from Alabama uh, and then Washington, D.C., mm. and then ended up in New York. And my parents are both really, really New Yorkers. Um, and so between all of that, you have a lot of different regional uses of the English language. And I noticed that and I loved that. I loved what mm -hmm. seemed like my grandfather's quite specialized uh, vocabulary that sometimes was uh, the same as the vocabulary that I found in the English uh, children's books that I loved so much. Oh, he would right. use words, you know, like uh -huh. chap and so forth and so on. And I just thought that was that British exciting. Influence. That British influence. Yeah. And so, you know, who would have thought that my Jamaican grandfather and Mary Poppins would have something to say to each other, <laughs> right. but they both, they were both actually incredibly formative mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. Mary Poppins comes into one of, uh, of one of my poems. And, um, and then with my grandmother, um, in thinking also about the music of language, the music of uh, a southern, a particular southern accent, um, but also she was very, very, very careful about locution. She she cared about mm. uh, uh, crisp speaking and the proper use of words. And then for my father in particular, a very, very energized vernacular um, uh, kind of quicksilver Harlem, New York English. Hmm. Hmm. Um, which I thought was thrilling, and I thought it was especially. I loved when he would curse. You know, he he didn't he didn't curse often, but <laughs> when he did, it was just thrilling <laughs> um, because it was mindful cursing, huh. um, and it was New York cursing, right. um, and uh, so so all of that was swirling around, and I paid a lot of attention. So um, it it doesn't sound like from what I've read that. You were destined to be a poet, or I mean, you were you were growing up, in fact, in Washington in a very political time and a very political environment. Although, yes. as you say, there was certainly a literary sensibility and a care for words and language and ideas. But you know, as you became a poet, then a little bit to your surprise, um, 
what did you begin to learn in particular about you know where poetry comes from in you and what it does in the world as a as a way of speaking and expressing truth? Yeah, I think my becoming a poet um, was was not expected uh, nor um, preordained or planned in yeah. any kind of way. Um, I grew up in a household of very, very smart and well-educated people, but not um, in a household of poetry readers uh, in particular. And um, and I think that, you know, most of the people who I went to school with, those Washington kids at good schools, um, became lawyers or got involved mm-hmm. in politics or became other kinds of professionals, but not creative professionals. Um, so it, it it was a funny thing. I, I, I guess um, we were always expected to be very, very practical um, mm-hmm. as um, black children of a particular era. Um, my parents understood how precious education was. They weren't wasting a scrap of it. Yeah. There was no question, no question whatsoever uh, about our being serious about school, doing well in school. They didn't even have to articulate it. Um, <laughs> you, 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 you just didn't mess up. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, they wouldn't quite have said, you know, people died for for you to go to school, but it was, you know, mm. it was implicit all mm. the time. Um, and uh, so I, I think in, in part, I mean, having a PhD, becoming a professor, making another kind of professional life, that existed alongside the stranger, more mysterious uh, life of an artist, life of a poet, um, was the piece that I took from the environment that I grew up in. That, mm. you know, you can be an artist, but you got to do something practical mm. alongside it. You've got to figure out how you're going to take care of yourself in the world. Now, luckily, um, I found that that studying and teaching African-American literature has been as um, – passionate a space for me, actually, as the space of my poetry. It matters as much to me. It just calls on a different part of me. Right. So, you know, I I, I started to say this um, before our interview began. Um, Well, one one thing I'm aware of in our our programs, I mean, poetry comes up more and more in my conversations. And, I mean, I, I, Mm -hmm. I interview Mm. It comes up in, in in not in necessarily expected places. You know, it comes up with a with a Christian scholar of the Hebrew Bible who is helping mm. uh, Christians both here and in Sudan see how the Bible would have us think about ecology and live differently with the natural mm. world, right? Um, it comes up with this uh, woman I interviewed recently, Joanna Macy, who is a translator of Rilke, right? Mm. And and um, so, but what I notice, I mean, those are just a couple of recent examples. What I know, what we notice, is that when we put poetry on the air, there's something so magnetic about that, right? It's and so it's you know what I, and I'm aware of that at the same time that I'm very aware that I think we are experiencing the failure of what you refer to in places as official language and discourse mm-hmm. and like the way we do it, the way we talk about hard issues in our public and in our media spaces, which is about arguments and statistics and, uh, yes. right? And it, it's clearly not serving us. So, and yet I don't think people, we necessarily have a collective imagination about what we need instead. So, you know, and so I'm, I contrast that, which is a 
an everyday experience. I mean, I, I almost experience it every time I hear the news. Um, yes. And the fact that I sense that so many of us are hungry for poetry. And poetry, um, and, and let me just say language, you know, because I think when you talk about African-American literature, you're talking about more than poetry, but you're talking about beautiful, powerful forms of language, that these things are something we need to survive almost, and yet we, we, don't, we don't quite know it. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, amen to everything that you've just said. And um, I think I think here's what we crave. We crave truth tellers. Mm-hmm. We crave we crave real truth. There is so we are there is so much baloney um, all the time. You know, the performance of political speech, of speech, as you say, on the news. Um, doesn't it often feel to you like there should be a, a thought bubble over it <laughs> that that says, you know, what I really would say if, right. I, if I could say it is, you know, these people who I oppose, I don't like them and I don't want to work with them because uh, they're obstructionist, uh, but I have to act like I want to partner with them because that's the accepted form of discourse. But in yes. fact, it's not really getting us anywhere. Yes. Or, um, you know, how I think of on things like, I don't know, comedy shows when there's a little ticker tape underneath that's, you know, she's lying. Right. <laughs> um, um, that's uh, how I experience um, sometimes um, that sort of speech as well. So I think, I mean... And what, uh, you know, you know be, what you're be, naming is that the, that the disingenuousness, in fact, is built into the forms of discourse. Right. Like it's built into it the forms of, of discourse because I think um, also even with well-meaning political people, um, cutting to the truth, <laughs> cutting right through... Uh, saying it plainly um, just is not what's called for. There needs to be a performance of uh, an attempt to bring together right and left um, uh, rather than the kind of ethical commitment to this is what I believe and this is what you elected me to do. Right. And this is what I stand by and this is why. And then you, you, you carry on. That's not really how politics works these days. And I think, you know, I, I learn so much every day from being a, a mother. My sons are um, 11 and 12. And you see the way that, that children, underst- that they know when they're being bamboozled. <laughs> uh, yes, they, they do. Um, and they also are drawn toward language that shimmers, hmm. individual <laughs> words with power, um, not just magical kids, like I think my kids are magical, um, <laughs> but children in general, they will stop you and ask you to repeat a shimmering word if they're yes. hearing it for the first time. You can see it in their faces. Um, so, can you um, think I of think... the word that you're, t- I have a 12 year old son also, by the way, so that's very ah, precious to okay. me. Ah, okay. Um, so can you think of a word, I'm just trying to think of one as I, I I'm nodding my head and I, I know you're right. Um, well, actually, if if they were right here, they would love hoodwinked and bamboozled. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. I can tell yep. you that. And our president used the words hoodwinked and bamboozled. Yes. Um, so uh, he has a very nice uh, turn of phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and they love um, the words. I see them testing out the words that they read in books that sometimes feel incongruous with the language that we speak today. So the other day with my kids, they had come across the word horror frost. H o a r f r o s t, and there was was frost on the ground, and the eleven year old said, "Is this horror frost?" And it took me back to my childhood of book reading, and I thought, 
I've never spoken that word before. Mm-hmm. And what indeed is hoarfrost as distinct from <laughs> frost. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just the, 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 the sheer texture and, um, and heft and power and interestingness of language, yes. A, children remind us that we human beings love that and B um, that uh, children remind us that we all like to be told the truth mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you know people sometimes ask me when they read poems that have an I uh, uh, that is letter I capital letter I in in, in them that seems to be um, autobiographical that seems to, to be something from my life People are interested in the details. Oh, did that really happen to you? Is that from mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. And um, what I try to explain is um, even if I am drawing on personal experience, the truth of a poem is actually much deeper than whether or not something really happened. Whether or not something really happened doesn't matter if you can be convincing in language. What matters is the deeper, truer things that we're trying to get to in poems. And and that doesn't mean even pronouncement of truth. Mm-hmm. That means an undergirding truth that I think is the power of poetry. And I think that when uh, I veer from that, even by a syllable, it's my job to know if I veered from that. That's where the red pencil has to come out. Mm. You know, as... Um as you're talking, the poem I'm thinking of, but maybe you would have another one in mind, is the Ars Poetica, I Believe. Ah, yeah. Which mm-hmm. is kind would of you about... Like me to read that? Yes. Which mm-hmm. I think is about one of your poems that is about what poetry is about. Yes, and it's got that... Uh, it's got it's that, got that uh, I in it. I uh-huh. in it. So let's turn to that. Ars Poetica number 100, I Believe. Poetry, I tell my students, is idiosyncratic. Poetry is where we are ourselves, though Sterling Brown said, every eye is a dramatic eye, digging in the clam flats for the shell that snaps, emptying the proverbial pocketbook. Poetry is what you find in the dirt in the corner, over here on the bus, God in the details, the only way to get from here to there. Poetry, and now my voice is rising, is not all love, 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 and I'm sorry the dog died. Poetry, here I hear myself loudest, is the human voice. And are we not of interest to each other? Hmm. So I think that the, um, the truth of that poem um, is not about true things or things that happened, um, but rather um, in the question, are we not of interest to each other? Yes. Which, to, you know, to me isn't about, oh, you know, I, I, I like her shoes <laughs> or, uh, oh, he has a fascinating job. Uh, it's much deeper than that. Are human beings who are in community of do we call to each other do we heed each other do we want to know each other and i think reaching across what can be a huge void between human beings you know it's so amazing that we are each unto ourselves inside of our heads i look at my children and i think as deeply as i know you 
I do not know what is in your heads. I am not in your heads. But I crave knowing them that deeply. And so, you know, it's most intense with one's beloveds. Um, but I think it's a way to move in the world. And mm-hmm. if we don't do that with language that's very, 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 very precise, not prissy, but precise, then are we knowing each other truly? And I think for our public life right now, these are really difficult and burning questions, right? They're really, it's a really pointed question right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the black interior, you wrote that the black interior is a, this is I'm paraphrasing, or I'm just reading, um, editing a bit, is a metaphysical space beyond the black everyday, a place where new, new mm-hmm. futures are imagined. And I wonder, you know, it seems like in our public discourse, it, it's become, it's almost impossible. I mean, that question, are we not of interest to each other, is drowned and destroyed mm-hmm. by the forms we have, by the way we talk and the way we've postured. Um, but I wonder if you think that poetry, for, for all of us, <laughs> um, actually gives us a way to point at those interior spaces that would reawaken, you know, as you say, this essential interest in each other, which makes new futures possible. Well, I, I think that it does. Um, I uh, In high school, I, I went to a Quaker high school in Washington, Sidwell Friends School. And um, we uh, had a meeting for worship once a week. It was, I don't know, 45 minutes or something like that of sitting together in silence. And when moved to speak, pe- people would speak. It didn't happen very often. <laughs> and then around graduation, everyone would get up and cry. And that was the speaking. Right. Um, and, or, you know, or there was always one teacher who spoke. And, and uh, as slightly cynical teenagers, you know, we weren't going to speak. But nonetheless, the quiet was very important. I even understood that then. But more importantly, the moment of silence with which we began the day. Mm-hmm. The, the perhaps three minutes of silence with which we began the day, um, that feels to me, I I cherished that then. Um, that overrode all teenage uh, restless silliness. Mm. I knew that that moment of inner listening would have analogs throughout the day, if you know what I mean, mm. um, that, 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 that sort of chunk. And right now you can't see me because we're on the radio, but I'm, um, holding my fingers together in a little rectangle. Okay. Um, you know, so like that chunk, that smaller than a brick sized chunk of contemplative silence with which to simply, uh, listen and take stock would be something that I would need to call on throughout the day. I think that's a very, very important way to be able to go through life. And I think that poetry can provide those kinds of chunks. You know, Mm. right before um, the inaugural, the day before, there was a sound check, and um, the sound guy uh, asked me to – and, you know, the microphone, oh, my goodness – just this amazing <laughs> instrument, <laughs> this like finely calibrated, you know, kind of the hope diamond of microphones. Right. Um, and so he said, okay, why don't you say some poetry? That was his phrase, say some poetry. 
so we can see how it works on the mic. And the day before, Washington was full of people. People were already coming to the inaugural, and the mall was quite full with with lots of, of folks. And it was just me up on the stage, and no one was looking at me. And I recited one of my favorite poems, Gwendolyn Brooks's Kitchenette Building. Which starts out, we are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan, grayed in and gray. Dream makes a giddy sound, not strong, like rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man. And then I continued mm-hmm. with the poem, which asks about, could a dream rise up through onion fumes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the halls? It's extraordinary, beautiful, tiny, tiny sonnet. And let me tell you, hundreds of people literally stopped in their tracks to hear this you know, uh, unknown to them person recite a poem by someone unknown, no doubt, to most of them. Mm. And these hundreds of people, I watched them sort of gather in a darkening sort of cluster. And then when the poem was over, they clapped. <laughs> in other words, they knew it was... Some, something about the form of the poem, mm-hmm. right? I didn't say who I was or what I was doing or ask for their attention. The poem asked for their attention inherently. Hmm. And the poem is about people in Chicago. She's describing people in uh, poor people in the 1940s living in these kitchenette apartments um, under you know really difficult circumstances, trying to find a way to imagine something else, something beautiful. It's about a very, very, very important topic that transcends time and space. You know, how can the imagination and the spirit um, lift us above our quotidian difficulties? And so what I just was kind of really quite blown away by is that um, hearing the poem then was something that made sense to these folks, they didn't come to go to a poetry reading. Right. They were just walking around <laughs> they the mall. Probably but weren't, many of them didn't know who you were yet. They, they no, they, none of them knew who right. I was. That right. was the whole thing. Right. And, and but they knew what to do. Uh-huh. They knew what to do. It 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 mattered to them. They took something because and and I, how do I know that? Because I saw them stop and I saw them respond. So, you know, one thing that you did in that inaugural poem, um, praise song for the day. Just want to get it out here in front of me. Um, having said a minute ago in the, in the Ars Poetica that poetry is not about love, love, love. <laughs> you, <laughs> This poem is. <laughs> you invoked love um, into a political moment, into a, a public um, space. It's, it's hard for me to imagine that uh, a, a, that could have been done politically and, and have any yes. integrity, but it had incredible weight and also I think strangeness you know Mm. Uh, it was so out of place and yet Mm -hmm. so powerful and it worked so I'd like to talk about that Um, you know how do you how has that that notion that 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 aspect of that poem continued you know how do you read it how do you hear it now and what is the effect of putting that word out there? These have been hard years, these years since yes. the inaugura- inauguration, with all kinds of pressing problems where to, to, you know, to talk about love would, would almost seem superflu- even more superfluous than it might have on that day. Um, yes. Well, you know, um, 
When I wrote the poem, I wrote it as I write poems, as I, I think most poets write poems, that is um, very, very into and unto myself, mm-hmm. you know, g- going into the space and thinking, even though I, I did have to think, okay, well, this poem has a job to do. Um, I also simultaneously had to think, as I do with every poem, I, I can't anticipate this poem's life relative to other forms of discourse out there in the world. The poem is the poem is the poem, and that's what you're charged with doing. And if you don't um, go deeply, deeply, deeply tunnel down into that quiet interior space, then you're not, you know, you're not able to listen to your own particular music, and you're the one who's writing the poem. Mm -hmm. But after the fact, um, thinking uh, about it as um, a, a piece of art in the world that, that had its start on a particular occasion, I have certainly, certainly thought, I have tried to imagine President Obama using the word love in his inaugural speech. Yeah. Now, I think if any president could, I, I, I think he could. Uh-huh. Um, I think, um, but I, and I think it would be, you know, when I say poetry is not all love, 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 I mean romantic love is where we go first with the word, but really there is so much more to the word. Mm-hmm. Um, the word is sober. The word is grave. The word is not just about um, something light and happy and pleasurable. The word calls up deep, deep responsibility. Yeah, you're, the question you posed is, what if the mightiest word is love? <laughs> and and that's a real question. And mm-hmm. I think um, in a lot of my poems, I was thinking about this um, as I was um, uh, coming towards this, this interview. I was thinking about the act of asking real questions mm-hmm. in poems as a kind of spiritual practice. Um, No, I ask questions relatively often in poems and I ask them because I don't know the answer. Um, And I ask them because I think that poems are fantastic spaces with which to arrive at real conundrum-y kinds of questions, to go as far down the road as you can of understanding something and then Sometimes that road ends with a real question. So right. what if the mightiest word with uh, is love is – it's a question of fact uh, that perhaps asks in these times as an incredibly uh, heterogeneous collective, as an incredibly diverse country, is there such a thing as a love that can supersede or guide uh, or or take us through – disagreement. Um, what would that mean? What would that love look like? Um, mighty, you know, that's a, a very, very particular kind of, of, of word. Is there a kind of um, enduring power of love, as I so fervently want to believe? But then I think, I mean, once again, love with no need to preempt grievance, mm-hmm. love that is not about marital love. It's not just about familial love. It's not even about national love. In fact, love cannot just be for uh, the people in our nation, even though right now we're having this incredible national moment. Um, that, but, but by I say now, I'm in the moment of the inaugural. So yes. certainly that's something that it would have been tricky for an American president to say um, at this very American moment um, that 
no, the nation doesn't trump everything. The family doesn't trump everything. The beloved doesn't trump everything. There has to be a larger, a larger love. Um, and another poet, um, I think, uh, um, coming from another place, might even have taken it further, you know, not just love for human beings, between human beings, but a love sort of for the planet, right? I mean, right. Th- that wouldn't be my, my language, but someone could take it there. I, th- I think what you're, you're, you're injecting the word love into our, <clears throat> into our encounter with otherness, right? which is more and more just a defining fact, even of our national life, right? Even mm-hmm. of our family lives. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I mean, what something I think about a lot is how the word that we took after the '60s to to live together with otherness was tolerance, and that's not mm-hmm. nearly a large and mighty enough word. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but love is a much more demanding word. Yes, it's mu- it demands much more. Uh, uh, well, yes, and especially if it's a, a, you know, love with no need to preempt grievance. Yeah. You know, love that can um, even do more than tolerate d- dissent and difference, right? I mm-hmm. mean, that, that can can sit with it, uh, right. can take it in, can listen to it, can let it stand whole, um, mm-hmm. can, you know, not necessarily feel the need to engage it argumentatively. Right. Um, there are a lot of ways I think that people who are aggrieved can be addressed. We all have our grievances. Um, and again, this I think we understand on the intimate level. Um, when grievance is really heard on the intimate level, I think that does a great deal of, of, of the work of moving uh, people forward. Mm-hmm. To, to living together even if the problem isn't solved, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. So... So something I'm hearing, um, so you know, something else that I, I think I've thought a, a lot about in the kinds of conversations I've been having these last years is um, so with religious voices and spiritual voices, especially with religious voices, what we've done in our public sphere is set up the competing answers of religious voices where mm-hmm, the experience mm-hmm. of religion and spiritual life is every bit as much about these searching questions that you dwell in. Mm-hmm. Um and I, so I love that idea that that poetry. So you know, and and the other thing is that that our this moment in time. I'm not just talking about this political moment in time. This big turn of century, is uh, is a moment where a lot of our definitions that worked for a hundred years or two hundred years are just all out the window, right? I mean, we're having mm-hmm. to start from the ground up. So we're we're having to the questions are being posed for us, and, and the, the answers are not going to happen, we're not going to appear soon, or certainly not shared answers. So, but we don't know how to ask, to just let questions sit in these forms of public discourse. We don't know how to just raise those questions and let them be there as questions. And so it was something I'm really wondering now is that one of the appeals of poetry is that poetry, in fact, can, in a very, with great power and integrity, pose a question. Uh, is well, what yes. if love is what if the mightiest thing is love, right? And let that be uh, the important thing to say. No, well, that's right. And I think also um, 
and this is the way that poetry um, poems are living organisms. They're so yeasty, right? They uh, mm. they really become more than what they are in the act of returning to them and then maybe exiting out a different door. Uh, the way that 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 poems, um, when we stop and sit with them, we see different things each time we go back to them. Right. The the way that pe- people um, sometimes always at a reading, there's someone who will ask me, did you intend X, Y, and Z in a poem? And, or, or what do you want people to take from your poems? Yeah. Well, you know, I do want people to read them carefully. I was careful, and so I would like people to read them carefully. And, and I want the language itself to be crystalline. Mm-hmm. I want there to be no confusion with each chosen word because that's that's the stuff that we do um but i also think that as these yeasty living or organisms they're going to um <laughs> just dragging out this horrible metaphor right. interact with different hosts in different ways right right um right so you know each of us is is going to have our own uh, experience with the poem, and that's what it's such a, a gift to me when um, I get to at readings and such meet readers and perhaps hear a couple of different responses to one poem, and to see how diff- what what different careful readers have done with it and found a kind of relevance uh, that is you know sings with the particulars of their lives. Mm. Uh, that's that's a that's a great thing. Is there a particular poem just right now that comes to mind that you would want to read? Uh, I don't know, apropos any of this. Um. Um, well, there are there are many poems, um, but um, I could read you a poem from. Um, so, so I'm reading from Crave Radiance, which mm-hmm. is my new and selected poems, which has just come out from from Gray Wolf Press. And much to my amazement, I found, wow, I've been publishing poems for 20 years. (laughs) Um, Just as much to my amazement, I'm a middle-aged woman. (laughs) How did that happen? Um, So um, I'm reading from this, and and, and it collects poems from uh, many books, and there's also some new ones. So somehow this feels like it should be read. Um, This is called Translator, and it's from a long poem called The Amistad which takes up the um, historical case of uh, the Amistad captives who in the 1830s were um, stolen from uh, the western coast of Africa and were on a ship sailing uh, from Cuba when uh, they mutinied on board and uh, asked the navigator to sail them back to Africa. And instead, they ended up on the shores of Connecticut. They were jailed in New Haven. It had to be determined because already um, in American waters, the the transport of slaves was illegal, although at that point, of course, slavery was still alive and well Mm -hmm. in the United States. So their their legal status had to be determined. And uh, they were, uh, needless to say, not English speakers. So uh, a Yale professor named Josiah Willard Gibbs um, brought his students to try to learn their language and help them tell their story in court. But what he really needed was a translator. And so uh, in this particular poem of the long poem, uh, I uh, imagine uh, the perspective of uh, the man who who Professor Gibbs found, James Covey. So it's called Translator, James Covey. I was stolen from Mende Land as a child. 
then rescued by the British ship Buzzard and brought to Freetown, Sierra Leone. I love ships and the sea, joined this crew of my own accord, set sail as a teen, now resupplying in New York Harbor. When the white professor first came to me, babbling sounds, I thought he needed help until Weta, my mother's six, hooked my ear, and I knew what he was saying, and I knew what he wanted in an instant, for we had heard wild tales of black pirates off New London, the captives, the low black schooner like so many ships, an infinity of ships fatted with Africans, men, women, children, as I was. Now it is my turn to rescue. I have not spoken Mende in some years, yet every night I dream it, or silence. To New Haven, to the jail, to my people. Who am I now, this them, not them? We burst with joy to speak and settle the tale. We killed the cook, who said he would cook us. They rubbed gunpowder and vinegar in our wounds. We were taken away in broad daylight. And in a loud voice, loud as a thousand waves, I sing my father's song. It shakes the jail. I sing for my entire black body. Hmm. And so I, I guess maybe part of what called me to that poem um, was, first of all, uh, a single word in his mother's language, in his native language, weta, the power of one word, the word for six, that was the key, that precise use of language that, that enabled Gibbs to reach across the void to Covey and then Covey to uh, realize that he was – it was a calling. I'm very interested in moments of calling that, that happened uh, just by accident, uh, that he was called to go to the jail and help these people tell their stories so that their language could be used in service uh, to their very lives. Uh, and I think um, the way that the word, the role that the word plays in a moment when we are called and how service, uh, which is certainly service is what is described in this poem, uh, also serves the deeper self. So when Covey asks, who am I now? This them, not them. Mm. You know, I mm. think that's mm. really a very, very profound question when you think about the circumstances of his life. And it's asking that question in the poem that then um, propels him to the end, to being able to sing his father's song, to shake the jail with the power of that song, to sing from his entire, and here the adjective is very important, black body. So <clears throat> so something that I'm really interested in is this the connection between what is universal and what is particular mm-hmm. and how what is particular uh illum- illuminates the universal. So so recently I had a conversation with the chief rabbi of Great Britain who mm-hmm. said this striking thing that he thinks moral imagination in the Bible begins with begins with universal Universality and ends with particularity, which is kind of back the and mm. not the reverse of how we've come to think of it. Maybe superficially of diversity in Western culture is that the goal is to get to a place where we realize how like we are, right? Where we can celebrate mm-hmm. what we have in common. 
Yeah. But you're very much about, and this came through in what you just read. I mean, you know, you you use words like phrases like Negro esoterica, quirks, oddnesses, particularities mm-hmm. that your program, mm-hmm. your poems archive and preserve. So, how do you think about that? That um, why it matters, what the force is of bringing these very particular, you know, this black experience that you just described to our common life. I'm not sure I'm asking the question right, but maybe yeah. you get what well, you understand. Well, I have a bunch of responses, at. though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, first of all, um, I operate with one very, very simple premise. I believe in the universal and the particular, and I believe that the particularities of African-American life and lives, because, of course, the uh, African-American esoterica that I preserve, there are you know, literally millions of other uh, uh, archives uh, that could be preserved and that some of which are preserved by different kinds of writers. Um, But I think, uh, you know, we are always speaking out of our particular. And that was true in ancient Greece, and that's true in England, and that's true in all kinds of languages, and that's true for white people, and that's true for everybody. We speak out of what we know and what we have lived. And then um, hopefully from that, um, comes something that we might call the universal. I just taught uh, James Baldwin's work yesterday, and I'm interested in the rabbi's comment because one of the things that you see, and of course James Baldwin was, he was uh, his father was a preacher, he was a boy preacher who left the church, and um, what you see in the incredible complex amalgam of influences on his work, particularly in the essay form, is you see... Um, uh, the influences of biblical parables, of a biblical sense of narrative and storytelling, uh, of the sermonic. It's it's everywhere in Baldwin's essays. And so he operates kind of in the way that the rabbi described. You know, he'll say a great, big, humongous, true thing in right. a big voice. <laughs> and then he says that big, deep, true thing in a while. And you say, ooh. And then <laughs> he'll sort of give you the history and the backstory. Um, but I think that that aspect of his writing very much comes from uh, from his uh, uh, you know, kind of in his his DNA, right. um, the whole preaching practice. I wish I had that. I wish, um, I wish I could. I, I wish I had had that particular grandeur. Um, and perhaps because I didn't grow up um, in a uh, really explicitly, you know, kind of every week listening to. Uh, any kind of preaching or, you know, regular reading of the gorgeous Bible and knowing it uh, and really having it kind of in my bones, um, I think that that my relatively secular upbringing, um, as with many Americans, makes me a bit resistant to, I don't feel like I can pull off, you know, that big oracular uh, thing. I feel like I have to start with details and then do the big oracular thing. Mm. Um, I have to convince people with details that um, that that my speaking voice has um, is grounded in something. Um, so I just think that's a, a, an interesting comparative. comparative. Um, but I also think that um, you know because um, our education uh, is not integrated enough. And by this, I don't just mean um, with African-American materials, but I mean um, with really, really a deep and wide range of um, approaches, cultural approaches to 
um, what's important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's certainly come a long way from when um, from when I was a kid, um, I think that that's part of why um, people still look at um, uh, they don't realize that African American experience is one way of telling the American story, and right, that it, in right. fact, actually, it's a it's a profoundly centered way of telling the American story. And in fact, if you don't get it, and if you move around it in some way, if you don't pass through it, um, I think people will profoundly misunderstand mm-hmm. uh, a- America. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and, th- and this speaks more in a way to my um, educator self, because my poet self, you know, she's all intuition. Um, <laughs> She's not. There's no program. She's just, you know, doing as Adrian Rich says. You know, diving into the wreck. And mm. her job, again, to quote that great poem from Rich, she says, um, "I want the wreck itself, not the story of the wreck. I want the wreck itself. Okay. That's what you're supposed to be doing as a poet. So that's what what you know that part of me is doing. But the educator part of me." Um, uh, f- argues much more forcefully um, for the um, necessary centering of African-American culture and experience if one is thinking about the United States. Right. Well, yeah, the American story, but also the human story. I mean, which is... <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Something something I heard a minute ago. So I, I drove in knowing this morning that I was going to interview you, and I was just depressed as I as I tend to be these days by just hearing about what's going on with the economy, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, it was easier for me a few years ago when um, the big headlines were all about violence. It was easy for me to say, mm. that's not the whole human story. That's not the whole truth of mm-hmm. humanity. It's not the whole truth of religion. Um, it's a piece of the narrative, and we have to train our eyes to see the rest. But when I, when the problems as they are right now on a global scale are economic, when it's about whether people can eat, right? Yeah, whether they can buy winter coats for their children, um, mm-hmm. then then it then I wonder if it's even a luxury to say, you know, that we train our eyes. I wonder if it's a luxury to talk about poetry. A minute ago, though, when you read that, when you were telling that story about before the inauguration and the sound check, yep, and you read those lines from Gwendolyn Brooks. Now, what was that again? Can a dream yes, rise from, up? From- <laughs> yeah, but well, could a dream rise up through onion fumes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall? Yeah. Fight to sing an aria down these halls. And would we let it in and keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin? So then that's the next question. And, and, and maybe you know, Brooks has been very important to me. And maybe this business of poems asking real questions is perhaps something I kind of um, – imbibed unknowingly from Brooks because could a dream rise up through onion fumes? Deep question number one with no answer. But then the next deep question, what would we do with it? Would we take care of it? Would we keep it very clean? What does it mean for us to nurture that piece of ourselves and each other in the midst of the day-to-day exigencies of, in her words again, rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man? What place does dreams have in all of that? What do we do with that? You know, do, do, do we keep our dreams inextinguishable? Uh, in um, how do we feed 
that part of ourselves and each other. Um, that's what that's what she's asking, and that's a that's a very powerful question to me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a very powerful question, and I guess you know you speak. So, is poetry a luxury? Well, Audre Lorde's famous essay, "Poetry is Not a Luxury." Um, I would uh, side with that. I think that one of the um, great things about poetry, and many poets and many black women poets have, have, have written about this, that it has human beings have always made song. Communities, tribes, peoples have always told each other the story of who they are in song. And I use the word song to be roughly analogous with poetry because, you know, we, we – we're, it's not just words on the page. We're always aspiring to song when we write when we write poems. Otherwise, you know, we don't want them to lie dead and flat. Hmm. We want those words to lift up, um, and we want them also to live in the body in the way that song lives in the body and lifts you up and fills you with 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 a real quantity when you're singing. Um, there's a thing in you when you sing a song, um, and so um, I think you know poetry has always existed and always existed in a communal context. So I feel like, well, people must need it because people always did it and never stopped doing it. Um, And that part of what people get from that is the story um, of uh, of who I am and who we are. I got to tell you my story. I got to tell you what happened. Let's think about who we are. And I I think that also gets at why... And maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but in poetry, it's like that word love. It's it's more exacting. Mm-hmm. I feel like, um, I don't know, you see, a lot of educated Americans maybe get their only doses of poetry through those pages they may or may not dwell on in The New Yorker, right? Yes. <laughs> well, um, yeah. But here's the thing. You have to be vulnerable. Po- you have to be vulnerable to take poetry, and you you either have to be. I mean, it can hurt. Like like beautiful music yes. can hurt. Yes. Um, maybe that's the embodied part of it that you're saying, but you, you almost have to. I've seen for myself. I have to feel either strong enough or destroyed enough to re- ah, to, re- that's to a, take in poetry. That's a beautiful way of of putting it. Um, I I think of. Uh, Toni Morrison is is one novelist who I think of as um, she's as good as a poet. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think right. that there's something so just incredibly distilled um, in her novels that um, it uh, reading them affects me in the same way that reading poems affects me, just a- almost as a as a physical experience. And um, I remember for years I didn't read Beloved because I just thought. I just can't take it, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Just can't take it. Got to wait till I can take it. And that when I read it, I read it in very, very small pieces, like like a long book of poems, actually. Yes. Uh, you know, just sort of chunk by chunk because um, it had that that dual effect that you're that you're talking about, and that that kind of um, a very, very, very visceral power. Um, so, but I think poetry, you know, what I, what I also like to continue what uh, a number of writers, Lucille Clifton, Wanda Coleman, they've talked about poetry as a, an art form that is, um, 
uh, a poor people's art form, which is to say you don't need you, you can't write a novel without a lot of time to yourself. Yeah. You, you, you know, <laughs> it just they don't get written any other way. Um, but I love how these women talk about how you can snatch time to make a poem. That doesn't mean that they aren't hard to make, but it means that, you know, they are like uh, grass or flowers coming up in the sidewalk cracks. Um, And that, you know, Wanda Coleman says, I can start a poem if I'm waiting online. Mm. Poor people spend a lot of time waiting online. Mm. I couldn't write a novel, excuse me, waiting online, but I could start a poem waiting online. Lucille Clifton says, uh, the best conditions for me to write poetry are at the kitchen table. One kid's got the measles. uh, Another two kids are smacking each other. You know, life is going on around me. And not only is that the stuff of the poems, but also that she can snatch little tiny snippets of space for the poems. She had six children. And uh, she was very, very funny. And she said, why do you think my poems are so short? (laughs) Because that's what results when you're grabbing time like that. But, I mean, they are uh, incredibly powerfully meditative, amazing, amazing poems. Um, So I think that there's a way that that poetry – you don't make any money from writing it and you don't need any money to make it. Mm. There's some place where you, it's another interview where you quote a, a feminist colleague who said if, if Descartes had been a woman, he wouldn't have said, I think, therefore I am. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and or I mean, what, yeah, her it, question was, what if Descartes could get pregnant? Yeah. How would that have changed the Western canon? And, and, like, and tell me how, how being a mother then changed you as a poet. Um, well, I think that first of all, uh, um, it grew me right up. So any Virginia Woolfy ideas that I had about um, my right to a, a literal room of one's own, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. my my the right to have, and of course, I mean that is a, a very important and beautiful and necessary and ahead of its time uh, piece, a room of of one's own. But 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 moving it forward to our times, um, I think that the image of the writer with you know just hours and hours and hours of unbroken time and the perfect space and the perfect view out the window and the perfect uh flowers on the table and the perfect rituals um you know when you're when you're raising children yeah um, it, it and, grows and, all of us up in that way though whether we're that's right <laughs> you just realize like well if you're gonna if you're gonna do it just do it yeah. don't even think about doing it don't talk about doing it don't you know mm-hmm. just do it and so um actually it was with my first child and um nursing in the middle of the night um and being of course so tired but also wonderfully unguarded i found that mm-hmm. actually being that tired was fantastic for my poetry mm. because I couldn't, um, I had no, uh, uh, filters. Um, the images were just present and there, um, in the way that, um, you can't, you know, sometimes we don't speak so perfectly and beautifully when we're very, very tired, but whatever's there just comes out. And I found that was good stuff. Mm. Um, and I just, you know, I'd have the baby in one arm and it would be three in the morning. Uh, and, I'd write some things down on any scrap of paper, and I just grabbed the time I had. Um, I think also when my children are one year apart and 
in that time, my very, very beloved mother-in-law was um, in the in, in the end of her life and mm. actively dying and then died. And so having those experiences of of giving birth and the privilege, she was a very, very, very deeply, deeply, deeply spiritual woman. Um, and for me to be able to see someone have a faith that made her fearless, although she also was a fearless woman mm -hmm. who shepherded a large family through times of war and you know, just a brave woman. So, so for me, it was a privilege to be intimately with her in those years of her life. And I think I, I came to really understand something very deep that served my poetry about the kind of, um, I've called it before, the porous scrim between life and death mm. Um, mm. and about what it means as a poet to be able to be the person who can sit with those profound, 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 essential human experiences and let them happen and not fight them and learn from them. I never would have thought before that it was a privilege for someone to let you be intimately with them as they, as they move towards dying. Hmm. But it was, and I think I understood that because uh, I was having and raising these, these, these little babies. Would you read the poem, um, Giving Birth is Like Jazz? <laughs> oh, neonatology. Yes. Uh, I, um, I really love that one. Do you want me to read the whole thing? Uh, let me see. How is it? It's... I could read the... Um, it's a, so it's a poem over many um, sections, but uh, I, yeah, well, I, I was see. Looking at this is the conclusion. In... Yes, absolutely. Um, so this is the, um, the last poem of um, a long poem called neonatology. Giving birth is like jazz, something from silence, then all of it. Long, elegant boats, blood-boiling sunshine, human cargo, a handmade kite. Postpartum, no longer a celebrity, pregnant lady, expectant. It has happened. You are here. Each dram you drain a step away from flushed and floating, lush and curled. Now you are the pink one, the movie star. It has happened. You are here. And you sing, mule, holler, peep, swallow the light and bubble it back. Shine, contain multitudes, gleam. You are the new one, the movie star. And birth is like jazz from silence and blood. Silence then everything. Jazz. And, and if I might, I, I'd like to put another poem next to that. Yes. Um, which sort of um, illustrates uh, what I was uh, talking about, about the, the proximity of those two experiences. This poem is called Autumn Passage. On suffering, which is real. On the mouth that never closes, the air that dries the mouth. On the miraculous dying body, its greens and purples. On the beauty of hair itself. On the dazzling toddler, like eggplant, he says, when you say vegetable, chrysanthemum to flower. On his grandmother's suffering, larger than vanished skyscrapers, September zucchini, 
other things too big for her glory that goes along with it. Glory of grown children's vigil, communal fealty, glory of the body that operates even as it falls apart. The body that can no longer even make fever, but nonetheless burns, florid and bright and magnificent, as it dims, as it shrinks, as it turns to something else. Mm. I'm so glad you read that, too, next to the other one. I, I, I never put them together, but of course they, they go together. They do. Don't they they yeah. absolutely do. So we have, you know, 20 minutes left. What, any, what else would you like to read? Um, um, well, I thought I wanted to read some poems um, uh, from my Prudence Crandall poems. Oh, yes. Um, the poem, poet Marilyn Nelson, when she was the um, poet laureate of the state of Connecticut, where I live, decided that um, she was going to really think about, in thinking about how to make her tenure relevant, she thought that exploring Connecticut's African-American history through poetry would be uh, an interesting project. And so she did a number of, of, uh, of projects that, that came out of that. But um, she and I are both quite interested in uh, history. We find great use for history in our poems. And so she asked me if I wanted to work on a book together with some uh, figure uh, in Connecticut's African-American history. And we decided to um, explore the story of Prudence Crandall, who was a white Quaker woman in Connecticut. Again, we're in the 1830s, as with Amistad. And the townspeople of Canterbury, Connecticut, asked her to start a school for the girls in town, white girls. And this was very, very unusual and progressive for townspeople to say that they wanted girls to be educated. Hmm. Um, most American women um, couldn't read, were not thought worthy of education in the 1830s. Um, so she started the school, and there was a young black woman who worked in the school uh, doing chores who asked Miss Crandall if, after she finished her chores, she could study with the others. Prudence Crandall did not uh, object. She said, fine. And again, here's this moment where someone is just going about their business and suddenly they are called by being met with a very, very quotidian fork in the road. Um, when the townspeople said, we don't want our daughters educated alongside this black servant, that fork in the road for, for Prudence Crandall, it would have been much easier for her to say, well, okay then. Mariah can't study with the girls. Mm. But instead, she uh, said, well, no, actually, there's no issue with this girl studying alongside your girls. The town began a campaign of intense, intense intimidation. Um, and eventually she said, well, then your girls can go home and I'm going to start a school for all black girls. And she put an ad in the Liberator and black girls came from all up and down the East Coast to study at what was then called Miss Crandall's School for Young Ladies and Little Misses of Color. That was what we called the book. And so it became a school for black girls, even more unusual in that time. But the campaign of intimidation increased with the townspeople um, passing laws to try to keep the girls from being brought across state lines to study, refusing to sell them uh, groceries, poisoning their sole water source. Um, uh, they uh, killed and eviscerated a cat and tied it to the fence of the mm. uh, of the school. Um, and eventually, Miss Crandall just kept on teaching and. Um, uh, eventually, they surrounded the house and broke all the windows and set it on fire. And so uh, she got the girls out, but that's when she said, I can no longer protect my children. 
So uh, I, I thought uh, when I was writing my share of the poems, I thought, who was this Prudence Crandall and what, what does it mean to meet your moment? Um, what does it mean to answer your call? Actually, I believe is the, a Quaker phrase um, about answering your call. Um, and also, what does it mean to believe in education? Uh, and what did it mean for these black girls in 1832 to travel someplace sight unseen for education? Right. Um, that was what I tried to imagine. So if could I read a couple of yes, these? Yes, yes. Okay, great. Knowledge. It wasn't as if we knew nothing before. After all, colored girls must know many things in order to survive. Not only could I sew buttons and hems, but I could make a dress and pantaloons from scratch. I could milk cows, churn butter, feed chickens, clean their coops, wring their necks, pluck and cook them. I cut wood, set fires, and boiled water to wash the clothes and sheets, then wrung them dry. And I could read the Bible. Evenings before the fire, my family tired from unending work and New England cold. They'd close their eyes. My favorite was Song of Songs. They most liked when I read In the Beginning. Mm. Goodbye. Mm. The mother who packs her daughter's valise tucks a Bible between muslin layers. The father who shoes horses and fixes clocks and other intricate things that break saves coins in their largest preserving jar till the day for which they have waited comes. See mother wash and oil and comb and braid daughter's thick brown hair for the very last time. Does goodbye mean we hope or mean we weep? Does it mean remember all you know or come back as soon as you can or do not? Does it mean go now or I do not know? Goodbye, daughter, says mother. She watches the horse and buggy till it fades from view. Allegiance. Teacher is bewildered when packages and letters come from far to say how brave, how visionary, how stare-down the beast is Prudence Crandall of Canterbury. Work, she says, there is always work to do. Not in the name of self, but in the name, the water clarity of what is right. We crave radiance in this austere world, light in the spiritual darkness. Learning is the one perfect religion, its path correct, narrow, certain, straight. At its end, it blossoms and billows into vari-colored polyphony, the sweet infinity of true knowledge. Hmm. So that's a few from that series. You know, I want to tell you about uh, somewhere uh, when I was preparing to interview you, someone had just pulled out the three those three lines from that poem. Mm-hmm. Um, we crave radiance in this austere world, light in the spiritual darkness. Learning mm-hmm. is the one perfect religion. Mm-hmm. Beautiful lines on their own. Although I think pulled out like that on their own, it was it was meant to be a suggestion of what you believe and. You know, I mean, learning is the one perfect religion is quite a large idea. Mm-hmm. 
in the context of the narrative, the story that these poems are opening up, um, it it means something different. I mean, it, you know, it, it has mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of an interesting experience then to read the whole poem, and it's not less powerful; it's differently powerful. Well, yes, and it's funny when I read the poem uh, out loud. When I read all of these poems, actually. You know, they're set in a very particular historical context, Mm -hmm. and um, they are um, trying to tell a story, but also trying to be poems unto themselves. But when I read those lines that you mention, I feel myself practically like thumping my fist on the table because they feel so true to me Uh and so absolutely present to me, absolutely right now, absolutely, I believe this. I believe this. I believe it. So... um, I think it's a that moment always surprises me where um I'm I'm not in Prudence Crandall's uh, voice but I'm in my own although mm-hmm. of course I was never in Prudence Crandall's voice I was always in my own if you know what I'm saying Yeah I mean you know that that line just the the sentence the crave radiance is that because become the title of this collection of new and um, collected poems of yours. And I mean, just those words, crave radiance, and this sentence, we crave radiance in this austere world. I mean, that in and of itself is an example of something you can say in poetry that you that is is deeper than a fact, right? Mm-hmm. But it can't, it, it couldn't possibly be, be conveyed in a, in, 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 in these in the factual argumentative words with which we are more comfortable. Well, that's right. And I think that um, why people miss, you know, what's that saying? I don't know who said it, but we campaign in poetry, we govern in prose. You know, that's sort of a, <laughs> a, of a, of a chestnut that you hear in political life. Right. Um, um, but I think that's why, you know, we do miss um, some of that, that, uh, stirring, powerful language, some of it poetry itself that we uh, heard from Obama during the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but the job is a little different now. You'll remember, for example, um, he was, um, he didn't say he was quoting poetry, but he was when he said, uh, we are the ones we have been waiting for, which comes from June Jordan's poem for South African women. Oh. Um, and there were a few other little moments where, um, I felt that I detected um, uh, a poetic illusion uh, and an understanding that sometimes uh, in in campaign times, at least, um, you can borrow uh, language uh, that is dense and condensed and meant to stir and sprinkle it into the policy conversations. Yes. And I mean, is there something in you that grieves how... Uh how hard it is to to see a place for poetry. You know, it, it was so appropriate on that day of the inauguration, although it was very special to have a, a an mm-hmm. occasional poem, right? I mean, there would have been four yes. in history. Um, is there something in you that grieves that the space is so much smaller in which that might seem to be appropriate? Well, I guess I could say yes, and I would be telling the truth. But I think um, a deeper truth is that, my goodness, there are a lot of people and places in the world and in this country, so many communities, so many levels of human interaction. So uh, where I live, you know, both kind of 
in my head <laughs> and uh, in my virtual and writing life and in my teaching life, um, I, I still, literally, just about every day, I get uh, an email uh, from or or a letter um, from someone. Uh, who I wouldn't necessarily call a poetry person. These are not other poets or people who have followed my work. Um, Writing to me about where poetry is in their world, sending me their poems. Mm. Um, uh, A a story I've, I've told before, but it's just such an amazing story to me. The, um, the head of the United farm workers wrote to me and uh, sent me a United farm workers flag, which is very meaningful because um, boycotting grapes when I was growing up is the first political action I remember (laughs) taking the first act of protest. But they said, you know, in the inaugural poem, thank you for choosing the word lettuce. Because that – so the line is, you know, talking about the people who say it plain that many have died for this day and then uh, sing the names of the dead who brought us here. It talks about people who picked the cotton and the lettuce. So with that word lettuce, they said, you made visible the work of the people who feed the nation mm. with one word. So I I feel um, it's a privilege and that's why I talk about it. Um, for me to see that actually there are ways that poetry and poetic language are connecting, and not just mine, um, with people all over the place. We just don't get to hear about it very much. You know, one word that you use a lot, I just love, is conundrum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you've said, you've read, so culture, this is just an example, is what calls many of us into the conundrums of the public sphere. I mean, that's a word, for example, it's different than problems, issues, crises. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes, somehow, <laughs> and it offers new ways into those same conundrums. Well, yes, and here's what I do lament. What I do lament is that um, you're not going to hear that word on TV. <laughs> and I think that... Um, you know, my one of my sons was showing me in a history textbook, they had um, the uh, Gettysburg Address and they, next to some words that they thought would be hard words, in parentheses, they had the dumb version of those words. Uh, I wish I could think of an example right off the top of my hat, um, uh, off of my the top of my head. But nonetheless, I thought... You're in school. You're supposed to be you, – you, people can look words up. People can even do it without dictionaries. They can yeah. do it online. Um, I think that uh, – th- this what gets me sad about um, uses of language these days, this is what I lament, is that um, not enough people understand that you can look up a word for free, that using uh, really, 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 really precise language – makes things clearer. Mm. It doesn't make things, it doesn't Mm. obscure anything to use a bigger, better word if it happens to be a bigger word. Just use the absolute best word. Any human being can possess words. Um, And I think that um, when um, there is so often a default to a very, very simple language, and I don't just mean um, a simple way of using language, but literally simple words mm-hmm. as though, you know, oh, you can't, you know, you can't ask people to deal with a complicated word like conundrum. <laughs> um, I think that is actually hugely condescending, hugely condescending to young people, especially uh, their ability to 
to to learn and stretch and therefore be more powerful because they can be more precise and say more precisely who they are and what they mean. That upsets me. Well, and you know, the last two words of Black Interior are edifying conundrums. So mm-hmm. Edifying is another word I, I wish we could use. Um, and you could never say an edifying issue, an edifying crisis, mm-hmm. right? But even the, the, that that word conundrum um, suggests something that's very hard, very hard, mm-hmm. puzzling, challenging, and yet that, there, that there's, um, it's a puzzle that can be worked through, right? Yes. Well, absolutely. Um, and that it just takes, it takes a little bit of time. So I think that, that also probably when, you know, you hear about teaching to the test and, uh, and a- about the difficulty in, you know, I'm certainly not one to sweep technology out the window. It's, it can be an incredible, incredible tool. And I, marvel at how young people, I mean, my students, oh my goodness, they teach me so much about mm. the the positive enrichments of, of having more technological adeptness than I have. Right. Um, it's just fantastic. I mean, um, to see what they, again, in, you know, in teaching Baldwin, to see all of these incredible clips of Baldwin that you can get in two seconds on YouTube um, to see this great right, thinker to just have speak. access to that, yes. Fantastic, yeah, fabulous. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as we all know, what we're also up against are um, uh, the, the sort of the soundbite generation and, and trying to keep people's attention for a sustained period of time and that, that maybe uh, learning is changing not for the good in some very, very profound ways um, with regard to, you know, sort of jump cut thinking and learning. Um, so I do think only time is time. Uh, you know, I mean, th- there's just no substitute for meditative time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what that's what moment of silence in the Quaker tradition shows you. I mean, mm-hmm. only time is time, and just like only sleep is sleep, mm-hmm. we, we we can't do without sleep. We can steal it, but still the human body Hmm. uh, is going to need a certain amount of it or it will break down and cease functioning. Mm -hmm. Um, And so too with time. And I think that's really, really important to remember um, as things really do seem to be speeding up and going in a lot of different directions. We just have a couple more minutes. Is there a poem you'd like to read to to finish? Um. Why don't I read, um, we've been speaking about Lucille Clifton. The last poem in Crave Radiance? I thought so. I thought so too, but I didn't. Oh, uh, good. I'm so glad. (laughs) Um, I just decided I would let you make that call, but if you'd asked me to, that's what I would have said as well. Uh, Good. Oh, I'm happy (laughs) to hear that. Um, Well, along with so many others, oh, how I miss Lucille Clifton, uh, Mm. who who died last February. Um, And just a, a very, very, very great poet whose reputation I think will grow and grow as her work is more studied and talked about and written about and and there's and more published too. There's a, a, apparently a lot of unpublished work, um, and also just a, a beautiful, loving, uh, loving, loving woman to so many uh, of us younger poets. So. Um, 
to know her was really to love her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I miss her. And one of the things I learned from her poems, she never talked about this with me, but I learned in her poems, as I mentioned earlier, you know, she has poems where she has a very kind of casual conversation with her unborn grandchild. And then in the next poem, she'll have a casual conversation with her husband who's been dead for 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know, for, she was very fluid uh, through the portals of life and death. Mm-hmm. She had mm-hmm. a very deep kind of ancestral understanding um, and whatever the word would be that is analogous to ancestral, but that moves us into the future, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she was just on a continuum in that way. And I learned a whole lot from that. So uh, this poem is called One Week Later in the Strange. One week later in the strange exhilaration after Lucille's death. Our eyes were bright as we received instructions, lined up with all we were supposed to do. Now seers, now grace notes, now anchors, now tellers, now keepers and spreaders, now wide open arms. The cold wind of generational shift blew all around us, stinging our cheeks, awakening us to the open space, now everywhere surrounding. Elizabeth Alexander, thank you so much. This has been just wonderful. Well, thank you. This was this was a real deep pleasure for me as well. Thank you. Great. So, um, I think we're gonna. I think we're not gonna put this on the air until January, and I'm I'm not exactly sure about that, but we'll let you know for sure. That's what they're nodding heads behind me. So we will, but we mm-hmm. will give you advance notice and tell you when it's going to be up and available for podcast and all of that good stuff. Wonderful. And, you know, you've made me a rock star with um, – I have a lot of students in my graduate seminar who are from the Div School, as it happens, oh. um, and from religious studies. Uh-huh. So I was chitter-chatting with them, uh, a group of them this morning. I was like, well, I've got to go. I'm going to do this. They said, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's what you, I was saying to you. have avid listeners. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, that's great to hear. Well – so I hope I'll also run across you in person one of these days again, too. But this was really a delight. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And um, I'm sure with whatever um, like front matter you do, it would be great if you could m- mention the name of the book oh, since I, it'll yeah. still kind of be hot off the press. Absolutely will. Yeah. All right. Terrific. Okay. Well, thank you. All Have right. a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.